0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Acts 18. We are going to read the last five verses of chapter 18 and then all of chapter 19 this morning, and this is the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. And before we read this next section, I would like to wrap back around to something that Joe Jones said last week when he was preaching that was very encouraging to me, and I think was encouraging to a lot of people, so it's worth repeating. So here we have Paul right in the middle of this vicious ministry cycle. So he goes to one town, he preaches the gospel, he gets beat up or persecuted or thrown in prison, he recollects himself. He goes to the next town, shares the gospel, gets beat up or persecuted or thrown in prison, recollects himself, goes to the next town, shares the gospel, on and on this ministry cycle goes. And we might read through Acts and wonder to ourselves, how in the world did Paul not just throw in the towel and give up after all of this suffering and persecution and rejection that he faced? We might ask, what was Paul's fuel for ministry endurance? Well, if you would, look back at verses 9 through 10 in chapter 18. And once again, Joe Jones preached on this last week. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that sermon, I would encourage you to go online and to listen to that sermon. It was very encouraging. Uh, But look at what it says in verses 9 through 10. What was Paul's fuel for ministry endurance? The Lord said to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So perhaps in a moment when Paul was feeling especially weak or inadequate or afraid or wondering if his ministry was worth it, the Lord Christ strengthens Paul. How does he strengthen Paul? By his word. And he uh, reminds him of his presence, his protection, and his providence. So, this is a powerful revelation of Christ to Paul. But notice again an interesting detail in verse 9. It says, The Lord said to Paul, Notice this, one night in a vision. Notice that it does not say that the Lord revealed himself like this to Paul every night. And yet, Paul drew strength from this moment for days and weeks and months to come. And there will be moments in our lives when God reveals himself to us in a uniquely powerful way, perhaps through his word or through a time in prayer or through maybe singing through worship or meeting with some fellow believers. Maybe you can remember a moment or several moments like this in your life, perhaps even in the past year, moments when it felt like God was so near to you. Moments when it felt like God was wrapping you in his love and in his embrace. Moments when it felt like God was reassuring you of his promises in a uniquely powerful way. Moments when it it seemed like God was reassuring you, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Here's a glimpse of hope. Here's a glimpse of my love. Here's a glimpse of what trusting me actually feels like. Here's a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth. And God's purpose in these moments is not only to strengthen us and encourage us right there in that moment, but it's also to give us something to draw on for days and weeks and months to come, just as Paul did, when God reveals himself to you and strengthens you by his word powerfully, write it down, remember it, meditate on it, tell others about it. Don't just move on and forget what God did for you. As uh, Dennis Friedel put it, don't forget in the dark what God has shown you in the light. Or as Aslan put it in the Chronicles of Narnia, I give you a warning. Here on this mountain, so think about mountaintop experiences, I have spoken to you clearly. Remember my words. Here on this mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. But as you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Perhaps this morning you are feeling especially weak or inadequate or desperate for a fresh assurance of God's presence and love and protection. Well, the good news is that we do not need to wait for God to reveal himself to us in a vision or on top of a mountain to hear from God. And to be reassured by his presence and his promises and his love. God wants to meet us, to strengthen us, and to fuel us for ministry endurance today and every day by his word. And just as Christ said to Paul in Acts 18.9, he says to you and he says to me today, Do not be afraid. But keep on speaking, for I am with you, and my word will triumph through you. And that is the title of our message for today. Do not be afraid. The word of Christ will triumph. So let's pray, and then we will dive into our text for today. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would do just that by your word this morning. Give us fuel for ministry endurance. Strengthen us with a deep assurance of your presence and your promises and your love. Lord, I think of those this morning who are hurting Give them a real uh, um, assurance of your presence with them this morning. Give them clear hope through your word. Fill them with your Holy Spirit and give them joy and worship uh, this morning. And we pray this uh, all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, in our text for today, we will see four threats to our faith that Jesus protects us from by his word. Four threats to our faith that Jesus protects us from by his word, and these are up on the screen. Jesus, by his word, protects us from being deceived by ignorance, discouraged by rejection, distracted by greed, and disoriented by idolatry. So let's look at these one at a time, beginning with Jesus, by his word, protects us from being deceived by ignorance. And if you would, follow along as I read Acts 18, verse 24 through 19, verse 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, so in this first section, we see Jesus protecting his people by his word from being deceived by ignorance. Notice first that what Apollos was teaching and what these Ephesian disciples were believing was not false doctrine but it was incomplete doctrine. If you look back at verse 25 in chapter 18, it says, Apollos spoke and taught, notice this word, accurately the things concerning Jesus. But now, now look at verse 26. It says that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the way of God, notice this, more accurately. So Luke is being very clear that Apollos was not going from false doctrine to true doctrine, but rather he was going from incomplete doctrine to more complete doctrine. He was moving from ignorance to a deeper and richer and more accurate understanding of the triune God. And the same is true for the disciples in chapter 19. These were likely Old Testament saints who were still growing in their understanding of the gospel and of the blessings of the new covenant during a massive hinge point in redemptive history. Here's how John uh, Stott puts it up on the screen. In a word, they were still living in the Old Testament, which culminated with John the Baptist. They understood neither that the new age had been ushered in by Jesus, nor that those who believe in him and are baptized into him receive the distinctive blessing of the new age, that is, the indwelling spirit. In other words, Apollos and these Ephesian disciples were living with what we might call an underrealized eschatology. They were living as if Jesus had not yet accomplished all that he had already accomplished. Fortunately, Both of them, as soon as they learned the more complete truth, they believed. So this was not a case of rejection of the truth, as we will see in one moment, but of mere ignorance of the truth. So you might say, well, I'm so thankful that now after 2,000 years of study and great theologians and systematic theology textbooks and wonderful pastors, I'm so thankful that we have all of our theology figured out, and so we don't struggle with ignorance anymore, and if that's you, I would say, hold your horses. Let me suggest to you that we face the exact same threat today as these disciples did in the first century. Um, in fact, one of the biggest threats to our faith today is the temptation to live, usually subconsciously or ignorantly, with an underrealized or an overrealized eschatology. Now, you might be like, I have no idea what those words mean. Uh, well, let's define them, and they're up on the screen right now. And underrealized eschatology is whenever we live as if Jesus has not yet accomplished something that he's already accomplished and overrealized eschatology is whenever we live as if, as if Jesus has already fulfilled something that he has not yet fulfilled and these are two ditches you might say that all of us, every single one of us in this room are vulnerable to falling into, and they can be uh, damaging to our faith, especially if we are living unaware of them. So let me give you some examples of how these two ditches can play out practically. And as we go through these, I would encourage you to ask yourself, have I ever fallen into one of these two ditches? Maybe in this season of my life. So first is the ditch of an underrealized eschatology. Someone with an underrealized eschatology might make statements like this. There is no way that God could forgive me. I have no power over my sin. Or This situation is hopeless. Or, God has left me all alone. Or, I messed up my life so bad, I will never truly be happy again. Notice that in each of these statements, we are living as if Jesus never died for our sins. Or, as if he never rose from the dead, securing for each of us who believe in him an eternal life full of incomparable joy, meaning that we will experience. Fullness of joy again. We will experience happiness again. We are living as if Jesus did not give us his Holy Spirit, who is with us right now, to comfort us and to sanctify us and to to actually dwell in us and change us. Meaning that God is always with us. He has not left us and he will never leave us. We are living as if Jesus did not ascend into heaven and sit down at the right hand of God the Father, where he is presently ruling and reigning over all creation in such a way that not a hair can fall from our heads apart from the will of our Father in heaven. God wants us to live with the wind at our backs, knowing that he has already accomplished all of these things and more for us in Christ's first coming. So this is one of the biggest uh, threats to our faith today. Um, is to live with an underrealized eschatology. Um, but there's, uh, the pendulum can swing to the other side as well. There's another ditch on the other side of the road that we can fall into just as easily, and that's when we live with an over-realized eschatology. This is when we live as if Jesus has already fulfilled something that he has not yet fulfilled. And this might be even more common in our world today. So what would that look like? Well, someone with an over-realized eschatology might make statements like this up on the screen. God must not be enough Because I still have unsatisfied longings. Or, God must be punishing me because I am still suffering. Or, I must not be saved because I still struggle with sin. Or, perhaps more common in certain theological camps, statements like these. If you have enough faith, God will heal your physical pain in this life. Or, if you work hard enough, you can reach sinless perfection in this life. Or if you are special enough, God will speak to you audibly, or even face to face in this life. Notice that in each of these statements, we are living as if God's promises for the future should apply right now. We are living as if Jesus has already fulfilled something that has, He has not yet fulfilled. And here's the point: Whenever we live in one of these two ditches, whenever we live with an underrealized or an overrealized eschatology, we are extremely vulnerable to being deceived. It's one of the biggest threats to our faith today. Fortunately, the word of God can protect us from falling into either of these two ditches. The word of God helps us hold together all that Christ accomplished for us in his first coming, while also affirming that much more is to be fulfilled at his second coming. The word of God reminds us and helps us remember that not only have we been saved in the past, but actually we are still being saved in the present, and one day we will be saved comprehensively in the future. The Word of God reminds us that we have Jesus right now, living in us and through us by his Holy Spirit, and yet the best is yet to come. It reminds us that we are betrothed to Christ. We are engaged to Christ, but we have not yet been married to Christ. The best of our salvation is still yet to come, and it is by holding together the already and the not yet aspects of our faith that is, in one sense, the key to true contentment in this life. I love the way my friend Andrew Micah put it. He said, true contentment is not the absence of longing. Rather, it is trusting God in the midst of our longings and setting them in the context of his larger story. Isn't that good? Good. This is so easy to miss or to forget. It is biblical to long for something more in this life, especially as a Christian. In fact, if you have never felt a longing for something more in this broken and sinful world, I would be concerned that you're not seeing life clearly. This is why Paul, who famously writes, we love this verse, I have learned the secret of being content in any in every situation. Wonderful verse. Guess what he says in the exact same letter? I desire or long to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. So once again, contentment is not the absence of longing. It is trusting God in the midst of our longings and setting them in the context of his larger story. So you might say proper theology or proper eschatology. This is what it means to live in the already and the not yet. So how can we grow in this kind of contentment and proper theology, while well, according to Acts 18 through 19, the Spirit of God loves to use the people of God and especially the Word of God to help us understand the way of God more accurately. The Holy Spirit loves to use women and men like Priscilla and Aquila and like you and me to help those around them understand the gospel and to help them understand the way of God through sharing the word of God with them. God loves to use his people to reveal himself to his people. So before we move on, I would just encourage you to ask yourself, who in your life can you learn the way of God from more accurately? Or who in your life can you help explain the way of God more accurately to, just like Priscilla and Aquila? So four threats to our faith that Jesus protects us from by his word. Number one, the word of God protects us from being deceived by ignorance. Number two, the word of God protects us from being discouraged by rejection. Let's pick it up now in verse eight. It says, And Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil, Of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So here we see a drastically different response than what we saw with Apollos and the Ephesian disciples. With Apollos and the Ephesian disciples, we saw ignorance transformed to a deeper and richer knowledge of the triune God. That's wonderful. With this second group, we notice something different. We see unbelief actually escalate into vehement rejection. Now think about this from your own life. Think about times that you have experienced rejection. On a surface level, this rejection could have led Paul to believe that his ministry had failed He could have interpreted this rejection as God leaving him or disapproving of him. It's probably because you sinned, Paul. It's probably because you're not a great minister. It's probably because you messed up and you didn't say the right words, but he didn't do that. Instead, as we have seen throughout the book of Acts, rejection did not stop the apostles from preaching, nor did it stop the word of God from spreading. Nothing is going to stop the word of God. It will triumph. In fact, oftentimes rejection in the book of Acts, actually catapulted the gospel to spread into areas that it would not have otherwise. We saw that a few weeks ago when Paul's unjust arrest, oh no, allowed him to preach the gospel in prison. We saw it last week when the Jews' rejection redirected Paul to preach to the Gentiles. And now we see it here in this passage. Notice this, as this rejection actually relocates Paul to preach from a venue that allowed all of Asia to hear the word of the Lord according to verse 10, which is pretty incredible. So oftentimes, what might seem on the surface to be a rejection is, in God's economy, a redirection. Oftentimes, God uses rejection to redirect us to where he wants us to be, and Paul understood that. So just one question that I'd like to consider for this part of the story, and it's this. What is it that kept Paul from being discouraged or sidelined by this rejection? How was it that Paul did not see rejection as failure? Well, I would say, as we said at the beginning of the sermon, I guarantee that part of it was that he was drawing strength from Christ's word. He was drawing strength from Christ's promise, I am with you, do not be afraid, keep on speaking. Certainly, that was a big part of it. But let me point out one more more thing from this passage, and then we'll move on. Look back at verse 1 for a moment. It says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth. Now, you might think to yourself, well, that's odd. What was Apollos doing at Corinth? Well, don't worry. Paul gives us the answer in 1 Corinthians 3.6. He says that Apollos was watering the gospel seed that Paul had planted. If you look up on the screen, Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.6, I planted, Apollos watered, but notice this, God gives the growth. In other words, Paul rightly saw his gospel ministry as one of sowing, not of saving. Paul rightly saw himself as the sower and God as the Savior. Now this perspective on gospel ministry is vital for many reasons, but here's one of them. When we remember that we are merely sowers, not saviors, rejection loses its power. If we think it is our job to save people, if you're thinking right now of someone in your life who you desperately want to to know Christ, to move closer to Christ, and you're thinking to yourself, man, I just got to do a good enough job. I just got to be righteous enough. I just got to say the right words, and maybe then they'll be saved. We're starting to dip over into a savior mentality instead of a sower mentality. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus welcomes welcomes us to take that crushing weight off of our shoulders to save others, and he welcomes us to simply uh, be sowers. He says, you be the sower, let me be the savior. I've been meditating on this verse uh, in in this past month, Mark 4, uh, and I'll put this up on the screen. Notice how Jesus puts it in Mark 4. So think about our gospel ministry. What is our gospel ministry? Well, here we go. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man or a woman, should scatter seed on the ground. Now notice this. The sower sleeps. So here's some imagery of rest. The sower sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. The sower knows not how. The earth produces by itself. Do you notice the pattern here? The sower sleeps. The sower does not know how the plant grows. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once the sower puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus is welcoming us once again to take the weight off of our shoulders of saving others and to rest and to simply scatter the seed of the gospel and to rest and to scatter the seed of the gospel and to rest, allowing him to do the work. And if you are faithful to do this, if you are faithful to simply scatter the seed of the gospel to the best of your abilities, you can be confident of at least three things. Number one, God sees your faithful efforts. He is pleased by them and he will reward you. That was three things, but I'm counting it as one thing. Number two, God will bear fruit through you um, sometimes in ways that you see immediately. And that's so wonderful. And oftentimes, in ways that you will see over the course of a lifetime, and probably most times in ways that you won't see until eternity. And number three, regardless of how many conversions you personally witness or how how much you experience rejection, you can be confident that one day Jesus will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's because he, he never called us to be saviors, but he did call us to be sowers. So why didn't Paul see rejection as a failure? Because Paul rightly saw his gospel ministry as one of sowing, not of saving He rightly saw himself as a sower, and God as a savior, and God wants us to do the same. So, four threats to our faith that Jesus protects us from, thank you, Lord, by his word. Number one, the word of God protects us from being deceived by ignorance. Number two, the word of God protects us from being discouraged by rejection. Number three, the word of God protects us from being distracted by greed. Let's continue reading now in verse 11. I like this verse. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. I like that for two reasons. Number one, once again, you see God doing the work. We simply doing the sewing, simply do the sewing. Number two, the phrase extraordinary miracles is kind of interesting. Like, are there any miracles that are not extraordinary? So these must have been really, really epic. So God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, the Jesus that Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Skiva were doing this. Okay, let's pause here for a moment. Here we see a group of itinerant Jewish exorcists. Do you guys know the word itinerant? It means to, to, to travel from place to place. So this, this group was traveling around, offering their services to cast out demons for money. And apparently their company name was called the Seven Sons of Skiva, which I think is a perfect name. You can probably picture this on one of the back of one of those lawn care service trucks. The Seven Sons of Skiva, Free your lawn of unwanted weeds for good. Only this, in the first century, was the Seven Sons of Sceva. Free your soul of unwanted spirits for good. And when these Seven Sons of Sceva heard that Paul was successfully casting out demons in the name of Jesus, they thought, oh, we could, you know what? We could exploit the name of Jesus to increase our own business and wealth. And this, in one sense, is what greed does. Instead of using money and fame to serve people, it uses people to try to acquire money and fame. And in this case, these exorcists thought that they could use Jesus, they could step on his name to build their own business and wealth. Great idea, right? Does it work? Well, let's see. Let's just see what happens. Let's, let's pick it up in verse 15. Will Jesus be exploited? Well, after they tried to invoke the name of Jesus, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Oh, no. You can probably imagine the exorcists in this moment maybe gulping, looking at one another and thinking, that can't be good. And before we see what happens next, consider the irony of this moment. Here, these exorcists were in one sense serving the will of Satan, and yet even Satan didn't know their names. And the reason why is because, as one person put it, Satan does not care about knowing you. He only cares about using you. Or... Perhaps the devil did know their names, but he did not. He had no interest in dignifying them by calling them by their names. As another person put it, the devil knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. Meanwhile, Jesus knows your sins, but he calls you by your name. Here these men were so concerned with building a name for themselves that they completely overlooked the one person who could actually give them a name that would last forever. Jesus, in one sense, was standing one foot away from them, but they were too distracted by their greed to see him. I've been reading The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Have any of you read that? It's so, so good. Would highly recommend it if, if you get a chance. And at the end of the story, he tells... Uh, He tells, at the end of the book, he tells a story of a woman in heaven who is more beautiful and radiant than any woman you have ever seen. The main character calls her face almost unbearably beautiful. So he asks his heavenly guide who this woman is. Here's the excerpt. Is it? Oh, is it? I whispered to my guide. Oh, oh no, not at all, said he. It's someone ye all have never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the milk to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Even beasts and birds that came near her had its place in her love. Oh, well, she seems to be, I don't know, a person of particular importance. (laughs) Aye, she is one of the great ones. Ye have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. Apparently this woman was not distracted on earth by the empty promises of greed or by seeking to build a name for herself, but instead she sought first the kingdom of God, she sought first magnifying the name of Christ, which we'll see in a moment, and all of these things were added to her in abundance for all eternity. Here's the point. We desperately need the word of God to open our eyes To see the deceitfulness of greed. The greed message always runs contrary to the gospel message. Greed says, Give up Jesus, and I will give you a life and a name. The gospel says, Give up your life and your name, and I will give you Jesus. Greed says, Give up your family. And I will give you an eternity of self-indulgence. The gospel says, give up your pursuit of self-indulgence and I will give you an eternal family. Greed says, go ahead, give up your integrity and I will give you unrestrained pleasure. The gospel says, give up your idol of unrestrained pleasure and I will make you holy. Greed says, take. The gospel says, give. Greed says demand. The gospel says surrender. Greed says worship yourself. The gospel says give up yourself. Greed always overpromises but under delivers. So what do we do? Fortunately, the word of God can protect us from being deceived and distracted by its attractive yet deadly traps. And we will see that in our text in just one moment. But one more quick point before we move on. Interestingly, we might say that these men, these exorcists were behaving exactly like their father, the devil, Just as Satan has no interest in knowing his children, only using him, these men had no interest in knowing Christ, only using him. Notice again, really interesting phrase here. Notice again what the exorcists say in verse 15. They say, I adjure you by the Jesus that Paul proclaims. These men didn't even pretend to know Jesus personally. Instead, they tried to use Paul's Jesus as a means to get what they wanted. But in this passage, we see the same thing that we see all throughout the New Testament. And that is that if you want true salvation, Jesus must be your Jesus. He cannot be your spouse's Jesus. He cannot be your mother's Jesus He cannot be your sister's Jesus. He cannot be your friend's Jesus. He cannot be Paul's Jesus. He must be your Jesus. And he can be your Jesus even today, even right now. You can pray, God, forgive me for seeking to build a name for myself instead of just resting in the one person who can actually give me a name that can never be lost. Oh Lord, I don't want to use Jesus anymore. I want to be united to him. So Holy Spirit, unite me to Jesus and save me by his blood. And if you pray that prayer you can be confident that Jesus welcomes you with open arms. As Dane Ortlund put it in Gentle and Lowly, which just is another wonderful book, he says the posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms, and he will readily receive you today. Let's continue reading now in verse 16. It says, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. In the words of Alistair Begg, from this point forward, the seven sons of Sceva became known as the seven streakers of Sceva. <laughs> Just wanted to bless you all with that image. Now verse uh, 18, and fear, or 17, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or magnified. You might say that this verse in one sense summarizes the purpose of the book of Acts and the purpose of our very lives. The word of God prevails ultimately by causing the name of the Lord Jesus to be magnified. Now, verse 18, and many of those who were now believers came, interesting little note there, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which, by the way, is a modern equivalent of either hundreds of dollars, uh, hundreds of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, or potentially even millions of dollars. So this is a very costly bonfire. And then notice verse 20, which, again, could be another summary statement of this whole passage. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So here we get a beautiful glimpse of the power of the word of God to protect us from being deceived or distracted by greed. So you, you see the sons of Sceva, they try to exploit Jesus to increase their ungodly wealth. Whereas the townspeople, after seeing what happened and hearing the word of God preached, they repented and they gave up their ungodly wealth in order to follow Jesus. And this is the one true, proper response to greed. Have you been distracted by greed in your life? Have you been deceived by greed? Have you tried to use Jesus as a means to a further end instead of simply seeking to know him and be united to him? Well, the Holy Spirit is calling all of us in this passage to repent of that and to turn back to Christ. So this is a beautiful picture of the power of the word of God to protect us and to draw hearts to Christ. So four threats to our faith that Jesus protects us from by his word he protects us from being deceived by ignorance, discouraged by rejection, distracted by greed. Now, number four, we see the word of God protects us from being disoriented by idolatry. And we won't spend very long on this one, but let's close this, chap- uh, let's close this morning by reading the rest of chapter 19, starting in verse 21. Kind of a longer reading here, but it's good. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, "'After I have been there, I must also see Rome.' And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Now, key verse here. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with, keyword, confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. As Alistair Begg put it, oh yeah, we don't know why we're here. We're just part of (laughs) Rent-A-Riot. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open." And there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So very briefly, this passage, it, what does it demonstrate? It demonstrates the superiority of Paul's God, of Yahweh, over any idol or even the greatest god of the ancient world which was Artemis or Diana. Notice again verse 26. This is kind of the key verse of the passage. Demetrius said and you see in here that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia this Paul has persuaded, you might say through the preaching of the word of God, and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So what was it that persuaded so many people to abandon their idolatry and turn to the one living and true god? What is it that can persuade us to abandon our idolatry and to turn to the one living and true God? Well, it was the preaching of the word of God. And through Paul's preaching, these people were convinced that Paul's God was superior to any God that they could ever imagine. Consider just a few ways that Yahweh proved to be superior to Artemis in this passage alone, and this is up on the screen, and we'll close with this. What makes Yahweh or the the Judeo-Christian God, superior to Artemis, the God of the Ephesians. Well, verse verse 24, the worshipers of Artemis, verse 24 tells us that the worshipers of Artemis purchased and owned her, (laughs) whereas Yahweh purchases and owns his worshipers. Verse 26, Artemis was created by the hands of the Ephesians, whereas Yahweh created the hands of the Ephesians. I love verse 27a. When Artemis dies, she stays dead and loses all of her magnificence. She's counted as nothing. She's deposed of her magnificence. Whereas when Christ dies, he he rises again triumphantly and his magnificence glows all the more brightly. Verse 27b, Artemis was dependent on the funding of the people whereas Yahweh is dependent on no one. He's not like that. Verses 28 and 32, when the people followed Artemis, they were filled with this key word that you see over and over again, confusion and Disorder. Whereas when the people follow Yahweh, they are filled with order and peace. There's no cause uh, to justify this commotion because Paul had done nothing wrong. Um, and then verses 27 or 29, 37, and 40, when the people followed Artemis, they were filled with rioting and violence. Whereas when the people followed Yahweh, they were filled with love and peacefulness. So here's the point. When we are faithful to preach the word of God and to sit under faithful preaching, And to make the word of God primary and center in our lives and in our spiritual diets, idolatry will be deposed of its magnificence. It will lose its luster. It will be exposed for the foolishness that it is. God's word keeps us from being confused and disoriented by the cunning traps of idolatry. So as we prepare to worship and to come to the Lord's table, let's rejoice knowing that, yes, when Artemis died 2,000 years ago, she stayed dead. But when Christ died 2,000 years ago, he rose again from the grave, securing eternal life, forgiveness of sins, freedom from death and sin for all of those who trust in him. So let's rejoice now in prayer. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the power of your word to protect us from all different kinds of threats to our faith. Lord, as we go out, even this week, Help us to cling to your word all the more tightly. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal the presence and promises of God to us through your word in ways that would lead us to joy, to hope, and to true obedience. And ultimately, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, help us to magnify the name of Christ, for he is worthy above all other things and all other people and other, all other gods and idols that could potentially draw us. Uh, So, Lord, we just commit all of this to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.